Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so that we can learn how to build products that customers actually love and do a better job with that. And today we're talking about strategy. And this is an important topic because our work as product managers and as innovators needs to align with organizational strategy. And yet I often find that the people doing our job, the the work that we do, we don't really have a clear understanding of what that organizational strategy is, how our work might align to that if we knew it. Um, And we may even have some misunderstandings about strategy. So we're going to try to work that out a little bit to help us have a better understanding of what strategy is and some of the changes taking place in the business environment that are impacting strategy. We're joined by Dr. Rod Adner. He is a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. And he was previously uh, at NCED. His research is examining value creation and competition when industry boundaries are changing, which I think is true for many of us right now. Changes going on and uh, different uses of partnerships and the like. His latest book is Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World. And he has received high praise from his contemporaries, including Clayton Christensen, who described his work as path-breaking, and Jim Collins, you might recognize him as the author of Good to Great, uh, called him one of the most important strategic thinkers for the 21st century. I admire both very much. Clay Christensen was someone that we wanted on this podcast. Unfortunately, before his death, we were not able to arrange that. And my understanding is he was going to write the forward to Ron's book, Winning the Right Game, but was unable to complete that as well. But that's high praise to be associated with those recommendations for the work that you do. And do remember, if you come across anything as you're listening that you want to go back to, we do take detailed show notes for you. We also prepare a one-page action guide to help you immediately put into action the key takeaways from our discussion. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 379. Ron, thanks for joining us. Chad, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, this is a good topic for us. As I said, strategy, my, my view of strategy is that it really is the foundation. It's the driver of the work that we do as product people, as, as innovators. And we are more efficient when we're aligned with strategy. It's very common for when I'm working with companies, it's very common for the product managers, the innovators to not really know what the corporate strategy is. And guess what? It's pretty common to go to the executive team and hear very different opinions about what the strategy is. And I suspect you have ran into that as well. I'm hoping you can first just make this really simple for us. There's these tools that we've probably have heard of, or we've probably, a lot of us have used them. Porter's uh, Five Forces model, or his generic strategies of you know cost, leadership, differentiation, segmentation. And we got SWAT and Pestel and other tools that help us. But can you just make this really simple and talk about what is the nature of strategy? It's a great question. And we can talk about the nature of strategy, and we can talk about how it's changed which is why there's less and less coherence about what it is. So Mm -hmm. fundamentally, your strategy is supposed to be an indication of what you want to do. And the classic test for do you have a strategy is, does it? do you know what you need to do and do you know what you need to not do, right? Your strategy is how you allocate your resources and where you choose, what opportunities you choose to forego as you're pursuing the ones that you've chosen. And the it's interesting that If you, I'd say mainstream strategy today, even as it's taught in top MBA schools, the core strategy class is still the underlying construct or still what you listed. Porter's five forces, low cost differentiation. Clay, who you mentioned, who was a dear friend, his work came in and, and made this big contribution that highlighted the need to be more sensitive to the notion of substitute threats that are coming into your industry. 
But if you step back, a couple of things come immediately to mind, right? The first is that these tools, Porter's book came out in 1980. So he wrote it in the 1970s, thinking about what he was seeing in the 60s and 70s, right? Perfect tool for them, right? Clay, his book came out in 1997. It was based on a thesis that he wrote in 1993, and it was visionary, but it was based on the problems that we saw in the 1980s and early 1990s. And the world has changed. And there's a, I think there's a harder and harder time stretching those frameworks that were built for a world that was well-defined by industries into the world we face today, right? Porter's whole thesis was industry analysis. And when we think about, you know, classic disruption, and you think about all the really dynamic examples that we still cling to, the mini mill story, Southwest Airlines, all these different ways of doing things. You step back and you realize, okay, there was a lot of change in the technology, but Southwest Airlines was still selling you airline tickets, just like United. And Nucor Steel was selling you steel by the ton. It may have been cheaper, it been made in a different way, but the industry was the industry. And the world that we face today, much of the world we face today, and much of where the exciting change is, is where the industry is no longer the industry. It used to be that we you'd worry about, again, classic examples were online brokers against brick and mortar financial brokers. And so E-Trade sells you stock trades more cheaply than Merrill Lynch on the street corner, but it was still selling you trades. If you look at fintech today, the notion of what is fintech? Is it insurance? Is it investment? Is it gambling, right? Is it personal identity? The boundaries around these things are shifting and that's you know why we need a new approach to strategy for this current era. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. We did definitely have an industry focus before, and you would think about how do you, what's your position in the industry? How do you compete effectively in that position? And how can you maybe change your direction a little bit in terms of Porter's Classic Forces or something to be more competitive? Now, as you shared, it is more challenging to think about what industry you're actually in. Many uh, businesses span industries, and some of them, like fintech, doesn't cleanly fit anywhere. There's other factors going on we can talk about. Let's describe that a little bit. Do you have an example that you could share in terms of that that would make some of these changes in the business environment more clear to us? Sure. So again, think about the, the automotive industry today. We used to think about automotive as Ford versus GM. And then here comes Toyota with a tighter supply chain, and they can deliver higher quality cars at a lower price. But they're all selling cars. If you look at a player like Tesla, what's interesting is the way that 
the traditional car makers approached the electric car was like, okay, it's a, te- it's a new technology. There's a motor instead of an engine. There's a battery instead of a fuel tank. And if you were GM, you would look at them and you're like, I launched the first electric vehicle in the 1990s before you were born. I don't see the big right. deal. I can make electric vehicles. But if you step back and look at what Tesla is actually doing, where there's, yes, there's, they're making an electric car, but they're also putting out an electric charging infrastructure. And now you're in the traditional industry and like, wait a second. So you think you're Exxon as well as us doing the fuel and the car and the way they've approached servicing their vehicles with these over the air updates. Wait, so now you're also the service station and you've taken out the dealers and now they're putting power walls in your home and solar cells on your roof. That's a very different animal than we're used to looking at. And so the catch all phrase that has now you know, become this, you know, huge buzzword is it's not an industry, it's an eco. And we use this term and we can talk about what that actually means and how we move it beyond being a buzzword. A buzzword. But the reason people talk about a mobility ecosystem today is because those clean boundaries of we knew who was doing what have broken down. And actually, I, I talk about this in the new book in terms of thinking about the world as an ecosystem cycle, that if you go back 120 years, Autos were an ecosystem. People were trying to figure out who's making the cars, who's paving the roads, where do you get the fuel? And there's this primordial soup that needs to take shape. And as those relationships become stable and accepted, we can conceptualize the world in terms of industries where you're looking at what's happening in each one of these boxes and not worried about what's happening in the other boxes, right? More of a modular plug and play world. That's the automotive industry that we had for a hundred years. And now we're moving back into this ecosystem mode where things are being rewired and reconfigured. And the challenge for strategy today is that in so many different places, we're transitioning from that stable configuration of industries to this new reconfiguration. And yet all the tools that we have in the toolbox, except for the ones I'm going to talk to you about, all the core tools were built for a world of industries. And they begin to break down in this world of ecosystems. Okay, good. So I want to dive into some of those tools to help us think about this a bit. But just to frame this a little bit more, one thought that came to mind is the last few years, we hear a lot about business model innovation, right? So organizations uh, aren't just selling product A to consumer B, right? There's new ways of generating revenue that we're thinking about. And that often involves different partnerships, looking at things differently, has this kind of renewance of looking at the business model impacted this ecosystem perspective as well? Yes. And it's interesting because there's a, it works in both directions. If I step back, there's, I, I doubt there's anyone listening to this podcast who doesn't hear the word ecosystem 50 times a week. And I suspect that 49 out of those 50 times, if you were to take the word ecosystem out of whatever the sentence was and you put in the word mishmash, not a lot of meaning would be lost. That essentially, when people talk about ecosystems, they're, they're basically signaling, ah, there's a set of interactions that we need to worry about. And so the starting point for the way I think about ecosystems is actually, it's a very clear definition, right? So for, for me, an ecosystem is the structure through which partners interact to deliver their value proposition, right? And that definition has three different parts, right? It's anchored in a value proposition, which is the value you're going to give to your consumer, as opposed to being accredited in company. And there is this notion that you have a multiplicity of partners 
And structure means that they need to be aligned relative to one another in a certain way. That's for me, an ecosystem. And an ecosystem strategy is one that looks at that configuration and how you get partners into that alignment. The business model is really a company-centric view of how I make money. And the reason people talk about business models more and more is because, oh, there's a sense of with these new configurations, I can make money in new and more interesting ways. But the challenge with thinking just in terms of business models is it overlooks what it takes to get those partners into place to be willing to participate in your vision. And that's the, basically, every time somebody says we're thinking about a new business model, what you need to check very quickly is how much of that depends on just what we're doing versus what are we expecting from other partners? And if we need something from other partners, you have to think about well, how do I bring them into play? Essentially, if you're not talking about the business models that will make sense for them as well, you're going to be disappointed with the lack of alignment, which means the inability to really deliver on that initial promise. Okay. Are you also seeing through your research the dependency or incorporation of partners? Has that sped up too over time? Like when we look at the the examples you gave before of the traditional automotive manufacturer, maybe having a, certainly they have a supply chain they're dependent on, but they're really controlling the work that they do. Have you seen this changing a lot? And it's it, it, you picked up on exactly the right issue, which is it's not just about interdependence, right? If you look at an automotive supply chain, there's a huge amount of, of interdependence, but the structure of that interdependence is stable. We know mm-hmm. who's making the car seat and we know that they're going to ship the car seat to the car assembler who's then going to ship it to a dealer. What we're seeing today is debates about, oh, if I'm making the seat, maybe I should be touching the customer. Maybe I should be gathering data about their posture and I'm going to sell some healthcare development around that. So there's this, that's what I mean by this notion of reconfiguration. And what's definitely true, and I see this in my research, I see this with the companies I work with, is not only is there, so look, we've always had this interdependence, right? When the Romans put together aqueducts and road systems, they had to worry about this stuff. When we, when the car industry was founded 130 years ago, they had to worry about this. Stuff. What's different today is that because of where technology is, first, it's so much easier to try to pull things together in new ways. If you think about, look, the breakthrough idea that Toyota had with the Prius, right? That was a combination of two things. It was like, it was an electric motor and a combustion engine in a hybrid car. And that was a huge achievement. Today, we're putting 50 things into a car with all the permutations and, computa- and, and combinations that allows for. So on the one hand, we're seeing much more possibility for this. And at the same time, we're also seeing organizations, even mid-sized, small organizations, participating in so many more of these efforts simultaneously. And that's where you're seeing the system be get, in some ways, get ahead of itself in terms of excitement and then feeling overstrained in terms of what it means to deliver. And if you're a product person and your job is, okay, you make this one block, what you should be asking is, okay, what needs to happen outside of this block? Not because necessarily I have control, because somebody should be thinking about it. And that, again, this is a, a company that has an ecosystem strategy that kind of per my prior book, The Wide Lens, has a wide lens perspective, is thinking about how, not just how to do a great job on their piece, but on how these other pieces come together to make the work on their piece material. Okay. 
raises lots of questions for me. I want to make sure we get the tools so we can tease apart at least some concrete things to help us think about this more. But I did just want to ask about the title of the book real quick, too. We're talking about this ecosystem environment, so changing different emphasis on partnerships probably changes our what we might think about as our core capabilities as, as an organization, too, with this dependency. But your book is called Win the Right Game. I just want to hear you tell us how did that frame the, how did that come about to the title? How, how do you frame that? Right. So, so the title is Winning the Right Game. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. No, but it's, I'm not just being uh, nitpicky. There was a book in the 90s written by Jack Welch, who ran General Electric called Winning, big business bestseller. And there's a subtle playoff of that because, so remember, GE at the time was the best company in the world and Jack Welch was the most successful CEO in the world. And the advice that was valuable was win. What you need to do is win. And if you wanted to be in GE, you needed to be number one or number two in your industry. That's how much you needed to win. But it was really clear what the game you were playing was. Jet engines, very clear. Okay. Ovens, very clear. Winning the right game is supposed to suggest a couple of things simultaneously. First of all, that there are multiple games being played today, right? That on their same game board, you have new players who are there doing something different, right? Amazon in the smart home is in ovens, but trying to do something different with those ovens than GE, right? Whether they're partners or whether they're doing their private brands and whether there's an Alexa unit inside or not. There's multiple games being played in what used to be a a well-defined space. Mm -hmm. And the other part of winning the right game is that it's supposed to evoke a fear, which is you may be winning, but winning the wrong game. And in this kind of environment, winning the wrong game can feel an awful lot like losing. Okay. And that's why we need this new approach to strategy. Yeah, because when I first you know, saw the title of the book, I thought of, of it in kind of a portfolio management context. You want to put your bets in the places that you think have some potential. Over time, you figure out which ones are going to win or in which ones won't, right? Then you, you put bigger investments than in your resources, those that look like they're going to win. I appreciate the comment that you could be winning at the wrong game. Hopefully, you figure out how to correct that before it becomes too late for you to uh, do. The, the starting case, the starting example in the book is code. So before people tune out, I know you've heard the codex story a thousand times. And what I'll tell you is you've heard it a hundred percent wrong. So the codex story is the exemplar of what it means to win the wrong game. So the way everyone's been told the codex story for the last decade since their bankruptcy was here's a company that invented the digital future, was poorly managed, too inert, couldn't embrace the future. And so it clung to their analog printing ways And that's why they died, because they couldn't transition. And then the inference from there, and the reason you've been told this at every corporate retreat you've been to, don't be like Kodak, is like, oh, we should be more aggressive and we should not be so. The real story, which by the way, the the first chapter of this book is available, as I said, online on my website, ronander.com. You can read it. And there's some tools even in that first chapter. So the real Kodak story turns out that, yeah, they had a hard time accepting digital up until 2000. And then they go through this incredible corporate transformation. And they bet their company on being the next great digital printing company, and they succeed, okay? They become the number one seller of digital uh, cameras in the US. They become the number four seller of, of inkjet printers in the world. They do everything that people said would be impossible, and they are amazing as digital printers. The thing that kills them is, and as soon as I say it, you're going to say, ah, oh, of course. The thing that kills them was that 
digital printing emerges but then becomes irrelevant because of digital viewing, right? What kills Kodak is not inertia. It's the iPhone in your pocket that said, I don't need to print any more pictures. It's, and, and, and that, of course, has its own transformation with social media and what photos mean, et cetera. So Kodak is this perfect example of two things. First of all, what it means to win the wrong game. They wanted to be a digital printing company, and it turns out that that was they won that game, but it was the wrong one, which says, as we think about transformation in this environment, you have to make sure the transformation is correct. But the subtlety to this is how did so many smart people get the diagnosis of bankruptcy so wrong for so long, right? Why is it that we've been told and accepted this, oh, it must have been lazy management when, again, the facts of the case demonstrate that management was neither lazy nor unsuccessful in what they were trying to do. And I think the reason for that is because, again, the tools that we have are focused on what's happening within an industry, right? This is, Clay was too influential in some ways, that if a giant falls, it must be because they didn't embrace the new technology. Whereas what we're seeing in so many different places, and Kodak exemplifies it, is it's not just about the technology, it's about how this change, which could be technological change, changes the boundaries across the industries. That if, you know, a phone could never be a printer, but a phone with a screen can undermine the need for printing. Mm-hmm. And the question is, so how do we see those kinds of transitions? I just told you a story. How do you look forward and be able to see these kinds of what I term ecosystem disruption in contrast with technology disruptions? And that's where like this notion of, yeah, we need new tools, we need new frameworks, we need new constructs and concepts. And that's that's what 10 years of work on this book were about. Excellent. Yeah, the opportunity for things to move much more quickly than they did in the past is clearly here. And it's just a matter of working with the right partners in the right way. And you can get something new going very quickly. Let's talk about some of the tools then that you introduced to help us understand how do we go about thinking of strategy in this uh, ecosystem environment. In both books, every one of these chapters is illustrating a new concept and introducing a new framework. So if we just think about this Kodak story that I told you, there are two key, two key tools that can help us see this kind of change. The first is what I term a value architecture, which is a, it's almost like design thinking, but from the firm's perspective rather than from the consumer's perspective. It's how do you as a firm, when you think about a value proposition, right? Like, you know, sharing memories through images. How is it that you, how do you create that conceptually, separate from the technologies and the activities and the partnerships, what really makes the core ecosystem? There's a question of, do you conceptualize that technologically? We take film, we have a camera, there's a photo lab, or do you think about it in value-based terms? Like, okay, we first we capture the image, then we produce the image, then we view the image, then we share the image. And so this Value architecture essentially is a framework for how to create these categories and then use these value-based categories to pressure test the impact of technological change. This is the only way that I could figure out to systematically look at a change like, oh, screens are getting better or phones are getting better and see how phones, which is a capture device, once you put a camera in, how they can impact the viewing box. So ecosystem disruption is what happens when in this value architecture, change is running across boxes rather than just changing the technology within the box. 
Okay, so, so help us think about that a little bit more. So does, I might describe the way that we create widgets as the first step is we, we, we heat it up, this next step is we, you know, whatever the steps are to creating. In a value architecture perspective, I'd be describing the elements of value that we create that in some in terms the customer would recognize as what we're doing. That the, yes, exactly. Okay. So it's, it's it, this interesting level of analysis that sits between the work of making the widget and what it is the customer is buying. It's like the how does the technology how do we break up the value proposition into the elements that make it up? And by the way, different. this is essentially your theory of value creation. And so you can take a certain value proposition and you can characterize it through a host of different architectures. Mm-hmm. But depending on how you think about those elements, and no firm, firms don't have this articulated explicitly, but every founder has an implicit notion of what those are. Depending on what you have in those value elements, what categories you're thinking about, You'll interpret change, you'll interpret opportunity in different ways, okay. right? And this is what this is trying to do, is trying to reveal, eliminate the blind spots that occur when change happens across those boxes rather than just within. So when we go to your website and we look at chapter one here of the book that we can get to, what will we see in terms of a value architecture tool? So you will see the value, the, the essentially the contrast between thinking about Kodak through a technology-based architecture and this notion of a value architecture where it's the elements of value. And the contrast is if you run your analysis along these two different lines, it shows you the two very different inferences that you would make about what will be disruptive and what will, and what, what will not. It seems like a lot of that involves how we frame the problem that we're solving. Like in the Kodak example, if I frame the problem as um, one element of value that we create for the customer is making it possible for them to see their pictures in high resolution, or wherever those pictures are. And framing it that way then would give me opportunities to think about what does it mean to see the picture differently, right? But if I frame it in terms of we create value by printing the highest resolution image available of our customers' pictures, th- then that's a different aspect of kind of a box that I'm painting myself into. And yeah, so the so this is essentially, so it starts with calling out how it is that you actually frame things. And then from there, we can begin to see a new set of interactions. So for example, second framework is what I talk about in, as, as what I call value inversion. Okay. So usually when we think about competition, we have, you know, two different kinds of relationships. We have other, other parties in this world that as they get better, you're worse off, right? We call those either rivals who are people doing what you're doing the same way you're doing, or we talk about them as substitutes, which is they're doing the same thing you're doing, but in a different way. And the better they get, the worse off you are. Then we have this other category that we call complementers, right? And these are people that as they get better, you're better off, right? Like better software means the hardware is better. What's interesting in these ecosystem settings is that there is a, and, and it kind of is illustrated in this Kodak case, is that there, so value inversion essentially says that complementary relationship isn't necessarily permanent. You have some complements that as they get better, you are better off and that will be true forever. Okay. So if you're Kodak and you've made your bet on being a digital printing company, making your money off of paper and ink, improvements in the photo processing chips inside cameras, those are always good for you, right? The better the image processing, better the pictures will be, the more likely you are to print them. So that's a traditional complementary relationship with pure synergy. Then you have other 
compliments. If you, you think about uh, photosynth that as pixel density goes up, you and I are old enough to remember when you know, you, you think about a three megapixel camera or a four megapixel camera and wish the picture wasn't so grainy. So as sensors got higher density, you're able to take better and better pictures. But at some point, you know what? At 20 megapixels, 40 megapixels, unless you're printing a photo on the side of a bus, it doesn't matter. That's a maturing complement trajectory. But then there's this third trajectory, and this is this notion of value inversion, which is that there are some complements that they get better and better. And then after a certain point, they get to be what I call, and this is like an echo back to Clay's work, the compliments become too good. Like having a screen on the back of a camera was really good in the beginning because it was small, it was pixelated, but you could figure out what you were taking picture of. You're more likely to take better pictures that you're then going to want to print. But as that screen becomes better and better and sharper and sharper, and it gets to be retinal quality is the Apple right. tagline. Suddenly, there's no difference between looking at it on paper and a screen. And so that's a compliment that becomes too good. Now it becomes a substitute. It's a compliment that becomes a substitute, precisely. And that is a competitive dynamic that certainly in the literature had never been identified before. And what's interesting is compared to a substitute, traditional disruption, classic disruption, Clay's big contribution was to say there are substitutes that you ignore and then they substitutes become good enough, and that's when they become a threat. So look, every manager knows to worry about that now because Clay's thinking was so powerful and became so widely adopted. Here is this additional dynamic, which is the threat is coming from somebody who is starts off as a helpful partner. But as they get more and more, quote unquote, helpful, as they get better and better, they transform into a substitute without necessarily trying to undermine you, by the way. Sometimes they actively want to undermine you, and then you're in even bigger trouble if you don't know to see trouble coming. So this is another framework. And again, this is the, the sort of dynamic that if you're just looking within an industry boundary, can't occur. We just the, the industry analytic tools that we have, because they don't know how to look elsewhere, they can't see the boundary break. And this is why I think it's so vital for anyone trying to innovate or in a context where other people around you are innovating, to be able to track these dynamics so that you can be more effective, whether it's in the offense or in defense. Excellent. So we got a, a couple tools in there that we can use to help us. And uh, we'll, we'll tell people where to find out more information in addition to your book as well. To just summarize where we've been together, this notion of strategy is an indication of what we want to do, right? Where we want to play, where we don't want to play. As I might think about playing a game, a strategy game, we're playing how to compete as an organization. The big shift that has taken place for many companies is they're not just in an industry anymore, and the relationship and value of partners has become more valuable, more impactful to them, creating this ecosystem sort of notion now. And we need some new tools to help us navigate creating strategy in this ecosystem environment. And we've talked about a couple of them, and you have many more that we can go and find out more about this environment. Any of us that are dealing with strategy and thinking about how do we effectively compete in this more complicated business and find good value in those tools? We'll get back to where we can get those in just a moment. As listeners know, I like a good innovation quote. What do you have for us and what does that mean to you? So I'm going to give you the the, the quote that I, I actually, I conclude the the book with every chapter has a quote. But chapter seven, which is titled Strategic Clarity is Collective, starts off with a quote from Malcolm Gladwell. And the quote is, you cannot make sense of things that you cannot describe. 
And then I offer an Adner corollary, which is the implication of that is that your people cannot make sense of your strategy if they cannot describe it. And essentially what this is a call for, so we just described these the frame, some of these frameworks and concepts. For me, it's become really clear working with a fair number of companies at this point, how important it is not that people have tools for a better analysis, that's important, but that they then have a language to be able to share that logic with the rest of the organization so that you can get coherent action. And I think we've been able to get away with a relatively impoverished strategy language for so long because so much of the action stayed within these stable boundaries. So that when I said do better, you knew what better meant for the product. Whereas now that boundaries are shifting, just the advice of winning is no longer enough. And so we need this language in order to give direction, in order to ask questions, in order to push back. So that's what that quote means to me. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that with us and how that impacts you as well. And as I said earlier, so many times when I'm working with product people and companies, and even at higher levels, there, there isn't a clear understanding of what the strategy is, right? And, and these are questions we just need to frequently ask. And when we know what the strategy is, we need to be frequently sharing it to keep everyone on the same page. And the world is getting more complicated. I appreciate you having tools available for us through your research to help us think through this some. How can people find out more about your work and obviously the book and some of these resources you have? I have a website, ronadner.com. And if you go there, you will get the, you can get the first chapter, the entirety of the first chapter, which includes Kodak story, value inversion, value architecture. It's posted there for free for you to read, for you to share with anyone who could benefit. The first chapter of my first book, which I think is at least as interesting for product folks, winning the right game, the wide lens, what successful innovation that others miss. There are a host of videos and additional resources. And so I really, I invite folks to, to go there and, and obviously, hopefully read both books and, and tell everybody. But even if you don't read the whole book, I think there's something meaty and substantial and, and hopefully helpful for folks there. Because as you say, the world is getting more complex. And so hard people, hardworking people, we want to make sure that they're working on winning the right game, not just working hard. Yeah, we want our work to feel like it's making a meaningful contribution. And that includes solving problems that actually matter and being in the right space. Yeah. Ron, I appreciate you sharing the information and the resources as well. We will put those links in the show notes to make it easy for others to find that. And it's great that you could be with us. Oh, this was a pleasure. It's just a great conversation. Thank you, Chad. Once again, listeners, just remember, if you do want to find the written summary of our discussion, as well as that one-page action guide to put into action our key takeaways here, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 379. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.